What happens when you put two experts behind mics to match wits on the current state of financial services, the economy, investments, and more? From the American College of Financial Services, this is Wealth Managed. Welcome to Wealth Managed. I'm Michael Finca. I'm a professor of wealth management at the American College. And I'm David Blanchett, head of retirement research at PGM and an adjunct professor at the American College. Uh, we are joined today by one of our fellow retirement income Conrads, Wade Fowl. Wade is a professor of retirement income at the American College. Wade, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, David and Michael. So Wade, we've spent a lot of time studying retirement income planning. I would say that the three of us come from a slightly different background than a lot of financial advisors in terms of the way we approach retirement income planning. The economist approach in some ways is different than the investment approach to retirement income planning. And you've characterized that as a safety first approach. The economists tend to embrace something that's more like a safety first approach as opposed to a, a probability-based approach. What are some of the differences between those two schools of thought? Yeah, yeah. This was something that really became apparent to me in the early days that you could ask basic questions and get completely different answers. Like, are stocks riskier over longer holding periods or less risky? Is an annuity helpful to retirement or is it just a costly mistake? Is there such thing as a safe withdrawal rate or, or not? And, and yeah, it really speaks to there's these fundamentally different approaches towards thinking about retirement. And that academic approach, I, I started calling it the safety first approach to retirement planning, getting into the ideas of life cycle finance and consumption smoothing. And how do you manage longevity risk? If you don't know how long you're going to live, you don't know what market returns are going to be. How do you get the most lifestyle out of your assets? And that leads to a different set of solutions than kind of the practitioner investment-based looking at historical data and trying to test what would have worked historically as a spending strategy and so forth. The, and that, that kind of approach I call the, the probability-based school of thought. Why don't we start with a discussion of the probability-based approach? Because that really was the way that a lot of financial advisors, that was the way they were trained to think about retirement income planning. What are some of the basic elements of a probability-based approach? Well, it developed in the 1990s. It does bring in the idea of sequence of returns risk because when Bill Bengen, who I'd say he's really the developer of it in the early 1990s, he pointed out that this even simpler approach, which is, well, say historically the S&P 500 earns 7% after inflation. So if you plug that into a spreadsheet, it looks like 7% is a safe withdrawal rate and you never dip into your principal because every year your portfolio returns 7% and then you spend 7%. And he recognized that that doesn't really work because markets are volatile and you could get yourself into trouble if markets go down and you have to sell an increasing percent of what's left to meet that goal. Even if the market recovers, your portfolio may not recover. And so he brought the idea of sequence of returns risk in by looking at historical data looking at real 30-year sequences of returns and figuring out with each 30-year period in history, how much could you have spent and sustained and found that 4% became a good rule of thumb about trying to provide downside protection that I could take 4% out of my portfolio. And that gives me a spending level that I could adjust for inflation and have that money last for a 30-year retirement. And then that approach becomes comfortable, that you look at the historical data, you see what have worked historically, and if it worked historically, it should be fine for the future. And so there's your retirement strategy. So, you know, one thing that surprises me is that 
Bingen's research came out in the 1990s. I mean, at the time it was very forward thinking, but today a lot of planners still rely on those same types of metrics, success rates, everything else. I think I have concerns, Michael might too, that it doesn't always lead to the right answers. I mean, do you think we're moving to a better place in terms of quantifying risk and outcomes? Are we evolving? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think we are. And yeah, there's a lot of issues. And for some reasons, kind of a 4% starting point can really be too high when you look at like the low interest rate environment that people have to pay taxes, they may have investment fees, they may not behave perfectly where they're keeping this 50 to 75% stock portfolio every year throughout retirement. But for other reasons, 4% might be too low. For And this is something we've all kind of done research on too about if you have plenty of other income from outside your portfolio, you can maybe take more risk and use a higher withdrawal rate because it's not the end of the world if you do spend down your investment assets. Or you may be able to adjust your spending. And if you can cut spending after a market downturn, that helps manage that sequence of returns, risk, and so forth. And so, yeah, I think today we are able to go into a lot greater depth and certainly use software because the, the whole fundamental point of the 4% rule, no one can use in practice. Even if your overall budget never changed, the idea that you're always going to get the same portion of that from your investment portfolio is probably pretty unrealistic for most people. And so it, it, it's a starting point, but I think we can really build on it and, and find better strategies today to cover a whole other host of issues. One of the issues that you pointed out in some of the first research that you published on this topic is that that approach used rolling returns, rolling historical U.S. returns. What's the problem. First of all, what is rolling historical U.S. returns and what's the problem with that kind of an approach? So rolling historical returns, and this was how Bill Binken did the research. He, he got the Morningstar Ibbotson's data going back to 1926. So he said, well, what if I was this hypothetical person who retired in 1926 and I got the market returns from 26 to 55? How much could I have sustainably spent with that 30-year sequence of returns? What about then 1927 through 1956 and, and so on and so on? Now, with his research, he had to stop a lot sooner. But now today, <laughs> we can go up through 1991 through the end of 2020 would be that most recent 30-year period where you can just test how much could you have spent over each of these 30-year periods. Well, is that useful for today? In many ways, we're in uncharted waters with interest rates have never been as low in that historical data as they are today. Like when I say that the 4% rule works historically, the, the important point there is I can say that for a 30 year retirement through 1991, because I need 30 years of data. So the low interest rates that we see today, they only show up at the tail ends of those last few retirements. In the historical data, the only time we saw interest rates even close to being this low was in the early 1940s when the 10 year treasury did dip below 2% barely and for a short period. And so it's, it matters when interest rates are this low, just because something like the 4% rule worked historically, it is under a lot more stress today. And that, that's really the starting point of just thinking about why looking at U.S. historical data is not enough. It's also just international data didn't work as well uh, for something like the 4% rule. Stock market valuations are on the high side today relative to the historical data as well. And the historical data over overweights the middle part of the historical period. I was already kind of talking about that with the year 2020 only shows up at the very end of one retirement. A year like 1960 is going to show up as a part of 30 different retirements. And so you, you don't get as much of a, the ability to see the impact of what the more recent market environment would do to those retirements as well. So wait, like, what do you see are some of the biggest 
positive and negatives of the tools that advisors are using today to help clients figure out when they can retire, how much they have to save, et cetera? Well, today, most advisors will use some sort of software and either that's a Monte Carlo-based financial planning program where you can put in different spending flows, different assets, different income sources, and so forth. And recently, I've just becoming more and more fascinated by the funded ratio as a, a more simple calculation than a Monte Carlo-based plan that actually I think works just as well. And, and I don't even think you necessarily even need the, the Monte Carlo-based plan, but it also can do the same thing where you can build in cash flows, both expenses and income sources, and get a much more realistic picture about how the spending will evolve over time. And then get a better sense of if you want a higher probability of success, it just corresponds to you're going to assume a lower a fixed investment return in something like the funded ratio, but you can then get a, get a really good sense. And it go, you don't need something like the 4% rule because it's not really relevant. Like the 4% rule simply is assuming a 1.33% compounded real return for the retirement because it's 30 years of inflation adjusted spending at 4%. That's the internal rate of return on those cash flows. And we, we don't really need that 4% rule. We can do the same sort of analysis on real financial plans with fluctuations in income and expenses in a much more realistic way. No, no matter the kind of software you use, you're able to get a better assessment in that regard. Now, it does matter what assumptions you use for market returns. And I know you've got some opinions on this as well, David, about like with Monte Carlo simulations, this whole point of you can't just plug in that bonds are going to average five or 6% in the future when interest rates are as low as they are today. But as long as you're being realistic there, I think we've got good tools to get reasonable retirement planning outcomes for clients. Great point, Wade. Let's take a break. Learn how a goal-based approach redefines 21st century investment with our Wealth Management Certified Professional designation. Bring your value to a new level at theamericancollege.edu slash WMCP. Deliver financial planning for every person and every need through our Chartered Financial Consultant Education Program. Find the tools and skills you need at theamericancollege.edu slash chfc. We're here with Wade Fowle. Let's continue our conversation where we left off. Wade, explain this funded ratio. What does that mean? Well, well the funded ratio, it, it's the, you calculate up all the assets and all the liabilities for the household. And, and the liabilities are their expenses for their retirement budget, essential and discretionary spending, legacy goals, and the reserves. What do they want to have available for unexpected expenses in retirement? And those add up to their liabilities. And it's both current values as well as cash flows over time, present values calculated for those cash flows, and then compare those to the assets, investment account balances, present value of social security benefits, the present value of any annuity income or pension income, the present value of any future work income and so forth. And then you've got a total asset value and a total liability value. And you're doing the discounting with a conservative interest rate as the way to manage market risk. And also with a conservative planning age as a way to manage longevity risk. And if you then have more assets and liabilities, you're funded. Your funded ratio would be higher than one or hundred percent. And that's not a guarantee that the plan will work, but it at least puts you in a lot better standing with having a plan that can potentially work as long as you play the cards right with your investment decisions and so forth. But that's, I think the discount rate, that's pretty controversial. And also the planning horizon is pretty controversial. How do you choose those? <laughs> so the, the discount rate, I think the best one to use as a starting point will be current long-term tips yields. 
whether that's a 30-year TIPS yield, which I don't know exactly where it is today, but it's been fluctuating around zero for a long time at this point. So right around 0% as a real interest rate. And then you could add inflation on top of that. And then for a planning age, it depends partly on how worried is someone about outliving their money, but I'd be wanting to look at age 95 to 100 as a default planning age. And then you can always make adjustments away from that, or you could do stress testing, like what's your funded ratio with the planning ages anywhere from 90 to 110, or with a discount rate anywhere from negative 1% real to 1 or 2 or 3% real, and see how much the impact is. But that, that's where I would, would start the type of analysis. Wait, I, I regret to inform you that the 30-year TIPS yield is, is negative 30 basis points right now, which <laughs> what that does, and I think that this is something that we've talked about in the past, is it makes retirement seem really expensive when you're applying a realistic discount rate to those liabilities. If you're using a Monte Carlo analysis, it's assuming perhaps a historical rate of return on bonds. It's assuming a pretty healthy U.S. robust equity risk premium. You may have a portfolio discount rate that's closer to 7 or 8%. Once you start using a discount rate that's nothing or negative, all of a sudden it increases the nest egg that is required to fund your liabilities in retirement. That's depressing. Almost nobody could retire if you did that. But Michael, that's not a funding ratio thing. That's just a pure capital market assumption thing, right? I mean, you could do that in a Monte Carlo where you assume that you have a negative real return out forever versus just a pure quasi-deterministic forecast for the funded ratio, right? Yeah, but I don't like reality. <laughs> yeah, if you want to live in, in a make-believe world, right. That's the thing about the Monte Carlo planning. If the average return corresponds to about a 50% success rate. So as soon as you get in your head, you want higher than a 50% success rate. The thing about Monte Carlo is it doesn't report this to you in this way, but you're implicitly assuming a lower than average return. And so if you want a 90% success rate, you might not realize it, but you might be assuming a 0% real discount rate as a part of that. Now, now not necessarily if the Monte Carlo is based on historical averages, even its 90th percentile success may be based on an unrealistically high rate of return. But as David's saying, you know, it's just, you got to get the inputs right. And then the outputs would be the same. And if what you're saying about if a Monte Carlo plan being based on historical averages, that would be like doing a fund ratio based on a 6% discount rate, which is not all that realistic in this environment, but would increase the fundedness of both plans because usually your expenses come later than your assets in a retirement plan. Your, your expenses are more backdated. And so whenever the interest rate increases, that would improve the fund and status. So it's a way to make your plan look better, but whether or not that will be successful is a whole another can of worms. Michael's heard me tell the story, but an organization which will go unnamed offers a Monte Carlo tool with 100,000 runs, which is, <laughs> sounds pretty sexy, right? But they're using purely historical data. And so, I mean, I would argue that a a Monte Carlo with a million runs that uses historical data is about as useful as a single estimate of a forward-looking forecast with reasonable CMAs. Any thoughts on all that, Wade? Yeah, the more runs that you do, the more precise your answer gets and the more precisely wrong it's going to be because you're not going to have any chance to get a lower return coming out of that. So yeah, I don't <laughs> talking about how many runs you have for your Monte Carlo, it's, it's just going to give you a more assured and correct answer with that type of approach. So the downsides of the probabilistic approach are that it's difficult to pick an appropriate set of capital market assumptions. You're focusing on a very binary outcome of either success or failure. 
Oftentimes we're using assumptions such as the 30 year time horizon, which may no longer be realistic for a lot of households today. Talk to me about the safety first approach. What are some of the benefits of using a safety first approach? So with the, the safety first approach, you're not necessarily wanting to leave things up to chance. Even if you want a high probability of success in the tr traditional like Monte Carlo approach, you could say that's kind of safety first, but it's not necessarily, it just means you're putting more pressure on the investments and you're probably gonna have to spend less to make sure the plan would work. And, and so the safety first approach is more about distinguishing between what's your core spending need and what's your more discretionary types of spending. And then with your core spending need, you tally up your social security benefits, your pensions, any annuities you have and so forth. And then if there's still a gap, you're not going to want to expose the, the spending in that gap to market volatility. You'd rather lock that in with some sort of contractually protected income. It could be holding individual bonds, but usually you'd get more oomph if you add risk pooling to the mix, which means you build a lifetime floor of protected income through some sort of annuity product that would support those core spending needs. And then, like we were saying, now you can take more risk with your other investments because it's not the end of the world if you run out of money. You now have reliable income to cover your core spending need. And so you invest for the upside for the discretionary spending on top of that. And that's the safety first approach. It's kind of prioritizing your spending needs. It's investing differently for different risk levels of with my core spending, I don't want to take a lot of risk. And so I don't, I use risk pooling for that. And then with my more discretionary expenses, that's where I may be willing to take more risk. And I, I leave that more bifurcated approach towards how I build my retirement income strategy. I don't leave it all up to the investments and the stock market to have a successful retirement in that regard. I think this is where economists and a lot of financial advisors deviate. It's about the idea of investment risk, that a lot of financial advisors operate under the assumption that the only way your money is going to last 35 years into retirement is if you take a significant amount of investment risk. But to an economist, there are always trade-offs. And when you take investment risk, the trade-off is the possibility that you could actually have less money and that you're going to have to cut back on your lifestyle. And that's why you say you want to make sure that you fund those essential expenses with safe assets and you want to maintain a certain amount of variability in spending if you're going to be funding that spending with risky assets, because there's always a possibility that you could not get the returns that you'd hoped for. But there almost seems to be a faith in the equity risk premium that it borders on religious faith. And a lot of advisors are willing to tie the success of their client's retirement to the expectation of an equity risk premium. But a lot of economists would say, well, there's got to be a trade-off. Yeah, absolutely. We've seen the risk premium historically, and historically we can say that the S&P 500's outperformed like 6% or more compared to different U.S. government bond indices. But it's just there's volatility around that, and there's no certainty. That's why it's a risk premium. It may not work out for you. And in the U.S., it often has worked out, but I think that it gets to a point where different people approach the risk premium differently. They have different styles about how they think about retirement income. A lot of advisors are comfortable with the risk premium, but I don't think all retirees are comfortable with that. And so if advisors could be more open to different approaches towards building a retirement income strategy and be able to draw more from the safety first approach when relevant or appropriate and from the probability based approach when appropriate, I think they could better serve their clients in that regard and to not just blindly accept the, the risk premium has always been there for people when they need it. <laughs>
Wade, this is Chris, one of the producers of the podcast. Do the two different approaches, does it vary on someone's affluence? Like if you're a more of a middle-class person versus a very wealthy person, is it better to take the safer approach? Is there any research to that question? It's not really net worth or affluence. There is a little bit of a, an angle around when we talk about that funded ratio, if you're dramatically overfunded so that you have more assets than you'll ever spend then you're more unlikely to ever run out of money in that regard. And so you don't necessarily need to consider a safety first approach, but still it might be your style. And it might, by locking in some of those core spending needs with a safety first approach, that might make you feel more comfortable with investing more generally and still be able to, in the long-term, have a larger legacy that way. So it's really not net worth, affluence, anything else. It's more just about how do you want to build a retirement income strategy? So I think to sum things up, Wade, is if you begin with the goal in retirement, which is a lifestyle, you're going to end up at a better place. You're going to be able to build a better retirement income plan. So thank you so much for joining us, Wade. Thank you. I'm Michael Finca. I'm David Blanchett. See y'all later. For more episodes and shows, visit theamericancollege.edu slash podcasts. Wealth Managed is a production of the American College of Financial Services. 